Hello, welcome to my recording of the great, great audiobook of Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. If you like this book and you need stuff to do with the book, teachers, head on over to my Teacher Pay Teacher store. It's just SWN, uh, the S, the letter WN, uh, and you'll find a whole lot of stuff over there like Google Forms and questions that go along with this book as well. So enjoy the story. Chapter 11 I had often wondered what old Dan would do if little Ann got into some kind of predicament. One night I got my answer. For several days a northern blizzard had been blowing. It was a bad one. The temperature dropped down to 10 below. The storm started with a slow cold drizzle and then sleet. And when the wind started blowing everything froze, leaving the ground as slick as glass. Trapped indoors I was as nervous as a fish out of water. I told Mama I guess it was just going to storm all winter. She laughed and said, I don't think it will, but it does look like it will last for a while. She ruffled up my hair and kissed me between the eyes. This did rile me up. I didn't like to be kissed like that. It seemed that I could practically rub my skin off and still feel it, all wet and sticky and kind of burning. Sometime on the fifth night, the storm blew itself out and it snowed about three inches. The next morning, I went out to my doghouse. Scraping the snow away from the two-way door, I stuck my head in. It was a warm as an oven. I got my face washed all over by little Ann. Old Dan's tail thumped out of tune on the wall. I told them to be ready because we were going hunting that night. I knew that old ringtails would be hungry and stirring for they had been dinned up during the storm. That evening as I was leaving the house, Papa said, Billy, be careful tonight. It slicked down under the snow and it could be easy to twist an ankle or break a leg. I told him I would and that I wasn't going far, just down back of our fields in the bottoms. Well, anyway, he said, be careful. There'll be no moon tonight and you're going to see some fog next to the river. Walking through our fields, I saw my father was right about it being slick and dark. Several times I slipped and sat down. I couldn't see anything beyond the glow of my lantern, but I wasn't worried. My light was a good one and Mama had insisted that I make two little leather pouches to cover the blades of my axe. Just before I reached the timber, old Dan shook the snow from the underbrush with his deep voice. I stopped and listened. He bawled again. The deep bass tones rolled around under the tall sycamores, tore their way out of the thick timber, traveled out over the fields, and slammed up against the foothills. There they seemed to break up and die away in the mountains. Old Dan was working the trail slowly, and I knew why. He would never line out until little Ann was running by his side. I thought she would never get there. When she did, her beautiful voice made the blood pound in my temples. I felt the excitement of the hunt as it ate its way into my body. Taking a deep breath, I reared back and whooped as loud as I could. The coon ran upriver for a way and then, cutting out of the bottoms, he headed for the mountains. I stood and listened until their voices went of hearing. Slipping and sliding, I started in the direction I had last heard them. About halfway to the foothills, I heard them coming back. Somewhere in the rugged mountains, the coon had turned and headed toward the river. It was about time for him to play out a few tricks, and I was wondering what he would do. I knew it would be hard for him to hide his trail with snow on the ground. And I realized later that the smart old coon knew this too. As the voices of my dogs grew louder, I could tell that they were coming straight toward me. 
Once I started to blow out my lantern, thinking that maybe I could see them when they crossed our field, but I realized I didn't stand a chance of seeing the race in the skunk black night. Down out of the mountains, they brought him. Singing a hound dog song on his heels, the coon must have scented me or seen my lantern. He cut to my right and ran between our house and me. I heard screaming and yelling from my sisters, and my father started whooping. <clears throat> I knew my whole family was out on the porch listening to the beautiful voices of my little round red hounds. I felt as tall as the tallest sycamore on the riverbank. I yelled as loud as I could. Again, I heard the squealing of my sisters and the shouts of my father. The deep oars of my old Dan and the sharp oars of little Lamb bored a hole in the inky black night. The vibrations rolled and quivered in the icy silence. The coon was heading for the river. I could tell my dogs were crowding him, and I wondered if he'd make it to the water. I was hoping he wouldn't, for I didn't want to wade the cold waters unless I had to do it. I figured the smart old coon had a reason for turning and coming back to the river, and I wondered what trick he had in mind. I remembered something my grandfather had told me. He said, Never underestimate the cunning of an old river coon. When the nights are dark and the ground is frozen and slick, they can pull some mean tricks on a hound. Sometimes the tricks can be fatal. I was halfway through the fog-covered bottoms when the voices of my dogs stopped. I stood still and waited and listened. A cold silence settled over the bottoms. I could hear the snap and crack of sap-frozen limbs. From far back in the flinty hills, the long, lonesome howl of a timber, timber wolf floated down in the silent night. Across the river, I heard a cow moo. I knew the sound was coming from the Lowry place. Not being able to hear the voices of my dogs gave me an uncomfortable feeling. I whooped and waited for them to bawl. As I stood waiting, I realized something was different in the bottom. Something was missing. I wasn't worried about my dogs. <clears throat> I figured that the coon had pulled some trick, and sooner or later they would unravel the trail. But the feeling that something was just not right had me worried. I whooped several times, but still couldn't get an answer. And stumbling, slipping, and sliding, I started on. Reaching the river, I saw it was frozen over. I realized what my strange, uneasy feeling was. I had not been able to hear the sound of the water. As I stood listening, I heard a gurgling out in the middle of the stream. The river wasn't frozen all the way across. The still eddy waters next to the banks had frozen, but out in the middle, where the currents were swift, the water was running, leaving a trough in the ice pack. The gurgling sound I had heard was the swift current as it sucked its way through the channel. The last time I heard my dogs, they were downstream from me. I walked on, listening. I hadn't gone far when I heard old Dan, <clears throat> and what I heard froze the blood in my veins. He wasn't bawling on a trail or giving the tree bark. It was a long, one long, continuous cry. <clears throat> in his deep voice, there seemed to be a pleading cry for help. Scared, worried, and with my heart beating like a churn dasher, I, I started toward the sound. I almost passed him, but with another cry, he let me know where he was. He was out in the ice pack. I couldn't see him for the fog. I called to him, and he answered with a low whine. Again, I called his name. This time, he came to me. He wasn't the same dog. His tail was between his legs, and his head was bowed down. He stooped about seven feet from me. Sitting down on the ice, he raised his head and howled the most mournful cry I had ever heard. Turning around, he trotted back out on the ice and disappeared in the fog. I knew something had happened to little Ann. I called her name. She answered with a pleading cry. Although I couldn't see her, I guessed what had happened. The coon had led them to the river, 
running out on the ice. He had leaped across the, the trough. My dogs, hot on the trail, had followed old Dan. A more powerful dog than the little Ann had made his leap. The little Ann had not made it. Her small feet had probably slipped on the slick ice, and she had fallen into the icy waters. Old Dan, seeing the fate of his little friend, had quit the chase and come back to help her. The smart old coon had pulled his trick, and a deadly one it was. <clears throat> I had to do something. She would never be able to get herself out. It was only a matter of time until her body would be paralyzed by the freezing water. Laying my axe down, I held my lantern out in front of me and stepped out onto the ice, and it started cracking and popping. I jumped back to the bank. Although it was thick enough to hold the light weight of my dogs, it would never hold me. Little Ann started whining and begging for help. I went to all pieces and started crying. Something had to be done and done quickly or my little dog was lost. I thought of running home for a rope or for my father, but I knew she couldn't last until I got back. I was desperate. It was impossible for me to swim in the freezing water. I wouldn't last a minute. She cried again, begging for the one thing I couldn't give her, and that was help. I thought, if only I could see her, maybe I could figure out some way I could help. Looking at my lantern gave me an idea. I ran up the bank about 30 feet, turned and looked back. I could see the light, not well, but enough for what I had in mind. I grabbed my lantern and axe, and I ran for the bottoms. I was looking for the stand of wild cane. After what seemed like ages, I found it. With the longest one I could find, I hurried back. After it was trimmed and the limber end cut off, I hung the lantern by the handle on the end of it and started easing it out on the ice. I saw old Dan first. He was sitting close to the edge of the trough looking down. Then I saw her. And I groaned at her plight. All I could see was her head and her small front paws. Her claws were spread out <coughs> and digging into the ice. She knew if she ever lost that hold that she was gone. Old Dan raised his head and howled. Hound though he was, he knew it was the end of the trail for his little pal. I wanted to get my light as close to Little Ann as I could, but my pole was a good eight feet short. Setting lantern down, I eased the pole from under the handle and thought, I'm no better off than I was before. In fact, I'm worse off now. Now I can see when the end comes. Little Ann cried again. I saw her claws slip on the ice. Her body settled lower in the water. Old Dan howled and started fidgeting. He knew the end was close. <clears throat> I didn't exactly know when I had started out toward my dog. I had taken only two steps when the ice broke. I twisted my body and I fell toward the bank. Just as my hand closed on a root, I thought my feet touched the bottom, but I wasn't sure. As I pulled myself out, I felt the numbing cold creep over my legs. It looked so hopeless. There didn't seem to be a way anyway that I could save her. At the edge of the water stood a large sycamore, and I got behind it, anything to blot out that heartbreaking scene. Little Ann, thinking I had deserted her, started crying. I couldn't stand it. I opened my mouth to call to old Dan. I wanted to tell him to come on and we'd go home as there was nothing we could do. The words just wouldn't come out. I couldn't utter a sound. I lay my face against the icy cold bark of the sycamore. I thought of the prayer I had said when I had asked God to help me get my two hound pups. I knelt down and sobbed out a prayer. I asked for a miracle which would save the life of my little dog. I promised all the things that a young boy could if only he would help me. Still saying my prayer and making promises, I heard a sharp metallic sound. I jumped up and stepped away from the tree. I was sure the noise I heard was made by a rattling chain on the front end of a boat. I shouted as loud as I could, Over here! I need help! 
My dog is drowning! I waited for an answer, and all I could hear were the cries of little Ann. Again, I hollered, Over here! Over on the bank! Can you see my light? I need help! Please, hurry! I held my breath, waiting for an answering shout. I shivered from the freezing cold of my wet shoes and overalls. A straining silence settled over the river. A feathery rustle swished by in by the blackness. A flock of low-flying ducks had been disturbed by my loud shouts. I strained my ears for some sound, and now and then I could hear the lapping sound of the ice-cold water as it swirled its way through the trough. I glanced a little in. She was still holding on, but I saw her paws were almost at the edge. I knew her time was short. I couldn't figure out what I had heard. The, the sound was made by metal striking metal, but what was it? What could have it caused it? I looked at my axe. It couldn't have made that sound. It was too close to me. The noise had come out from out in the river. When I looked at my lantern, I knew that it had made a strange sound. I had left the handle standing straight up for when I had taken the pole away, and now it was down. For some reason, unknown reasons, the stiff wire handle had twisted in the sockets and dropped. As it had fallen, it had struck the metal frame, making the sharp metallic sound that I had heard. As I stared at the yellow glow of my light, the last bit of hope faded away. I closed my eyes, intending to pray again for the help I so desperately needed. Then, like a blinding red flash, the message of the lantern bored its way into my brain. There was my miracle. There was the way to save my little dog. In the metallic sound I had heard were my instructions. They were so plain that I couldn't help but understand them. The bright yellow flame started flickering and dancing. It seemed to be saying, Hurry, you know what to do. Faster than I had ever moved in my life, I went to work. With a stick, I measured the water in the hole where my feet had broken through the ice. And I was right, my foot had touched the bottom. Eighteen inches down, I felt the soft mud. With my pole, I fished the lantern back to the bank, and I looked, took the handle off, straightened it out, and bent a hook in one end. With one of my shoelaces, I tied the wire to the end of the cane pole. I left the hook sticking out about six inches beyond the end of it. I started shouting encouragement to little Ann. I told her to hang on and not to give up, and I was going to save her. And she answered with a low cry. With the hook stuck in one end of the ventilating holes in the top of my light, I lifted it back out on the ice and set it down. After a little wiggling and pushing, I worked the hook loose and laid the pole down. I took off my clothes and picked up my axe and stepped down into the hole in the icy water. It came to my knees. Step by step, breaking the ice with the axe, I waded out. The water came up to my hips and then to my waist. The cold bite of it took my breath away. I felt my body grow numb. I couldn't feel my feet at all, but I knew they were, they were moving. When the water reached my armpits, I stopped and worked my pole toward little Ann. Stretching my arms as far as I out as I could, I saw I was still a foot short. Closing my eyes and gritting my teeth, I moved on. The water reached my chin. I was close enough. I started hooking at the collar of little Ann. <clears throat> time after time, I felt the hook almost catch. I saw I was fishing on the wrong angle. She had settled so low in the water I couldn't reach her collar. Raising my arms above my head so the pole would be on a slant, I kept hooking and praying. The seconds ticked by. I strained for one more inch. The muscles in my arms grew numb from the weight of the pole. The little Ann's claw slipped again. I thought she was gone. At the very edge of the ice, she caught it again. All I could see now were her small red paws and her nose and eyes. By old Dan's actions, I could tell he understood and wanted to help. He ran over close to my pole and started digging at the ice. 
I whooped him with the cane. That was the only time in my life I ever hit my dog. I had to get him out of the way so I could see what I was doing. Just when I thought my task was impossible, I felt the hook slide under the tough leather. It was none too soon. As gently as I could, I dragged her over the rim <clears throat> of the ice. At first, I thought she was dead. She didn't move. Old Dan started whining and licking her face and ears, and she moved her head. I started talking to her. She made an effort to stand, but couldn't. Her muscles were paralyzed, and the blood had long since ceased to flow. At the movement of little Ann, old Dan threw a fit. He started barking and jumping, his long red tail fanned the air. Still holding onto my pole, I tried to take a step backward, but my feet wouldn't move. A cold, gripping fear came over me. I thought my legs were frozen. I made another effort to lift my leg. It moved. I realized that my feet were just stuck in the soft, muddy bottom. I started backing out and dragging the body of my little dog. I couldn't feel the pole in my hands. When my feet touched the icy bank, I couldn't feel the, them either. All the feeling in my body was gone. I wrapped a little Ann in my coat and hurried into my clothes. With the pole, I fished my light back. Close by was a large drift. I climbed up on top of it and dug a hole down through the ice and the snow until I reached the dry limbs. I poured half of the oil in my lantern down into the hole and dropped in a match. In no time, I had a roaring fire. I laid little Ann close to the warm heat and went to work. Old Dan washed her head with his warm red tongue while I massaged and rubbed her body. I could tell by her cries when the blood started circulating. Little by little, her strength came back. I stood her on her feet and started walking her. She was weak and wobbly, but I knew she would live. I felt much better and breathed in a sigh of relief. After drying myself out the best I could, I took the lantern handled from the pole and bent it back into its original position and put it back on the lantern. Holding the light out in front of me, I looked at it. The bright metal gleamed in the firelight glow. I started talking to it. I said, Thanks, old lantern, more than you'll ever know. I'll always take care of you. Your globe will always be clean. And there'll never be any rust or dirt on your frame. I knew if it had not been for the miracle of the lantern, my little dog would have met her death on that night. Her grave would have been the cold, icy waters of the Illinois River. Out in the river, I could hear the cold water gurgling in the icy trough. It seemed to be angry. It hissed and growled as it tore its way through the channel. I shuddered to think of what could have happened. Before I left for home, I walked back to the sycamore tree. Once again, I said a prayer, but this time the words were different. A different. I didn't ask for a miracle. In every way a young boy could, I said thanks. My second prayer wasn't said with just words. All of my heart and soul was in it. On my way home, I decided not to say anything to my, to my mother and father about little Ann's accident. I knew it would just scare Mama and she might stop my hunting. Reaching our house, I didn't hang the lantern in its usual place. I took it to my room and set it in the corner with the handle standing up. The next morning, I started sneezing and came down with a terrible cold. I told Mama I got my feet wet. She scolded me a little and started doctoring me. For three days and nights, I stayed home. All this time, I kept checking the handle of my lantern. My sisters shook the house from roof to the floor with their playing and romping, but the handle never did fall. I went to my mother and asked her if God answered prayers every time one was said. And she smiled and said, No, Billy, not every time. He only answers the ones that are said from the heart. You have to be sincere and, and believe in him. She wanted to know why I'd asked. I said, Oh, I just wondered and wanted to know. 
She came over and straightened my suspenders, saying, Well, that was a very nice question for my little Daniel Boone to ask. Bending over, she started kissing me. I finally squirmed away from her, feeling as wet as a dirt dauber's nest. My mother never could kiss me like a fellow should be kissed. Before she was done, I was kissed all over. It always made me feel silly and baby-like. I tried to tell her that a coon hunter wasn't supposed to be kissed that way, but Mama never could understand things like that. I stomped out of the house to see how my dogs were. Chapter 12 The fame of my dog spread all over our part of the Ozarks. They were the best in the country. No coon hunter came into my grandfather's store with as many pelts as I did. Grandpa never overlooked an opportunity to brag. He told everyone the story of my dogs and the part he, he had played in getting them. Many was the time some farmer coming to our home would say, Your grandpa was telling me you got three big coons over in Peavine Hollow the other night. I would listen, knowing I only got one or maybe none, but grandpa was my pal. If he had said I caught ten in one tree, well, it was just that way. Because of my grandfather's bragging and his firm belief in my dogs and me, a terrible thing happened. One morning while having breakfast, Mama said to Papa, I'm almost out of cornmeal. Do you think you can go to the mill today? Papa said, I intended to butcher a hog or a bow out of meat. Looking at me, he said, Shell a sack of corn. Take one of those mules and go to the mill for your mother. With the help of my sisters, we shelled the corn. And throwing it over our mule's back, I started for the store. On arriving at the mill house, I tied my mule to the hitching post, took my corn, and set it by the door. I walked over to the store and told Grandpa I wanted to get some corn ground. He said, I'll be with you just in a minute. As I was waiting, I heard a horse coming. Looking out, I saw who it was and didn't like what I saw. It was the two youngest Pritchard boys. I had a run-in with them on several occasions during pie suppers and dances. The Pritchards were a large family that lived upriver about five miles. And as in most small country communities, there's one family that no one likes. The Pritchards were it. Tales were told that they were bootleggers, thieves, and just all around no accounts. The story had gone round that old man Pritchard had killed a man somewhere in Missouri before moving to our part of the country. Reuben was two years older than I, big and husky for his age. He never had much to say. He had mean-looking eyes that were set far back in his rugged face. They were smoky-hued and unblinking, as if his eyelids were paralyzed. I heard, had heard that once he had cut a boy with a knife in a fight over at the sawmill. Rainey was the youngest. He was about my age. He had the meanest disposition of any boy I had ever known. And because of this, he was disliked by young and old. Wherever Rainey went, trouble seemed to follow. He was always wanting to bet. I would bet on anything. He was nervous and could never seem to stand still. And once at my grandfather's store, I'd given him a piece of candy. Snatching it out of my hand, he ate it, and then he sneered at me and said it wasn't any good. During a pie supper one night, he wanted to bet a dime that I could that he could whip me. My mother told me always to be kind of to be kind of Rainy, that he couldn't help being the way he was. I asked why. She said it was because his brothers were always picking on him and beating him. On entering the store, they stopped and glared at me. Reuben walked over to the counter, and Rainy came over to me. Leering at me, he said, "I'd like to make a bet with you." I told him I didn't want to bet. He asked if I was scared. 
No, I just don't want a bed, I said. His neck and ears looked as though he hadn't been washed in months. His ferret-like eyes kept dashing here and there, glancing down to his hands. I saw the back of his right sleeve was stiff and starchy from the constant wiping of his nose. He saw I was looking him over and asked if I liked what I saw. I started to say no, but didn't, turned and walked away a few steps. Reuben ordered some chewing tobacco. Aren't you a little young to be chewing? Grandpa asked. Ain't for me, it's for my dad, Reuben growled. Grandpa handed him two plugs to him. He paid for it, turned around, and handed one plug to Rainy. Holding the other up in front of him, he looked it over. And looking at Grandpa, he gnawed at it in one corner of it. Grandpa mumbled something about how kids were brought up these days. He came from behind the counter, saying to me, Let's go grind that corn. The Pritchard boys made no move to follow us out of the store. Well, come on, Grandpa said. I'm going to lock up till I get this corn ground. I will just stay here. I want to look at some of the shirts, said Reuben. No, you won't, said Grandpa. Come on, I got to lock up. Begrudgingly, they walked out. I helped Grandpa start the mill, and we proceeded to grind the corn. The Pritchard boys had followed us and were standing looking on. <clears throat> Rainy walked over to me. I hear you have some good hounds, he said. I told him I had the best in the country. If he didn't believe me, he can just ask my grandfather. He just leered at me. I don't think they're as half as good as you say they are, he said. Better old blue tick hound can out hunt both of them. I laughed and asked Grandpa who brings in the most hides. I wouldn't believe him. He's crooked, he said. I let him know right quick that my grandfather wasn't crooked. He's a storekeeper, ain't he? He said. I glanced over at Grandpa. He had heard of the remark made by Rainy. His friendly old face was as red as a turkey gobbler's rattle. The last of my corn was <clears throat> just going through the grinding stones. Grandpa pushed a lever to one side, shutting off the power. He came over and said to Rainy, What do you do? Just go around looking for trouble? What do you want to fight? Reuben sidled over. This ain't none of your business. Besides, Rainy's not looking for a fight. We just want to make a bet with him. Grandpa glared at Reuben. Any bet you make sure would be a good one, all right? What kind of bet? Reuben spat a mouthful of tobacco juice on the clean floor. He said, Well, we've heard so much about them hounds of his, we just think it's a lot of talk and lies. We'd like to make a little bet. Say about two dollars. I'd never seen my grandf old grandfather so mad. The red had left his face. In its place was a sickly, paste-gray collar, the kind of old eyes behind the glasses burned with a fire I'd never seen. In a loud voice, he said, Bet on what? Reuben spat again. Grandpa's eyes followed the brown stain in its arch until it landed on the clean floor and splattered. With a leering grin on his face, dirty face, Reuben said, Well, we got an old coon up in our part of the country that's been there a long time. Ain't no dog yet ever been over smart enough to coon to him. Tree him, I said. Rainy broke into conversation. He ain't just an ordinary coon. He's an old-timer. Folks call him the ghost coon. Believe me, he is a ghost. He just runs hounds long enough to get them all warmed up and then climbs up a tree and disappears. Our old blue hound has treated him more times than Reuben told Rainy to shut up and let him do the talking. Looking over me, he said, What do you say? You won't bet two dollars your hounds can tree him? I looked at my grandfather, but he didn't help me. I told Reuben I didn't want to bet. 
but I was pretty sure my dogs could treat the ghost coon. Rainy butted in again. What's the matter, you yellow? I felt the hot blood rush into my face. My stomach felt like something alive was crawling in it. I doubled up my right fist and was about pointing, hitting Rainy in one of his eyes when I felt my grandfather's hand on my shoulder. I looked up, his eyes flashed as he looked at me. A strange little smile was tugging at the corner of his mouth. The big artery and his neck was pounding out and in. It reminded me of a young bird that had fallen out of a nest and lay dying on the ground. Still looking at me, he reached back and took his billfold from his pocket saying, Let's call that bet. Turning to Reuben, he said, I'm going to let him call your bet, but now you listen. If you boys take him up there and hunt the ghost coon and you jump on him and you beat him up, you sure are going to hear from me. I don't mean maybe. I'll have you both taken to the Tahlequah and put in jail. You had better believe that. Reuben saw that he had pushed my grandfather far enough. Backing up a couple steps, he said, We're not going to jump on him. All we want to do is make him a bet. Grandpa handed me two $1 bills saying to Reuben, You hold your money, and he can hold his. If you lose, you'd better pay off. Looking back to me, he said, Son, if you lose, pay off. I nodded my head. I asked Reuben when he wanted to come up for the hunt. He thought a minute. You know where that old log slide comes out from the hills into onto the road? He asked. I nodded. We'll meet you there tomorrow night about dark, he said. It was fine with me, I said, but I told him not to bring his hounds because mine wouldn't hunt with other dogs. He said he wouldn't. I agreed to bring my axe and lantern. As they turned to leave, Rainy smirked. <laughs> Sucker, he said. I made no reply. After the Pritchard boys had gone, my grandfather looked at me and said, Son, I have never asked another man for much, but I sure want you to catch that ghost coon. I told him if the ghost coon made one track in the river bottoms, my dogs would get him. Grandpa laughed. <laughs> well, you better be getting home. It's getting late. Your mother is waiting for the cornmeal, he said. I could hear him chuckling as he walked toward the store. I thought to myself, there goes the best grandpa a boy ever had. Lifting the sack of meal to the back of my old mule, I started for home. All the way, I kept thinking of old Dan, little Ann, ghost coons, and the two ugly, dirty Pritchard boys. I decided not to tell my mother and father anything about the hunt, for I knew Mama wouldn't approve of anything I had to do with the Pritchards. <clears throat> the following evening, I arrived at the designated spot early. I sat down by a red oak tree to wait. I called little Ann over to me and had a good talk with her. I told her how much I loved her and scratched her back and looked at the pads of her feet. Sweetheart, I said, <clears throat> you must do something for me tonight. I want you to tree that ghost coon, for it means so much to Grandpa and me. She seemed to understand and answered my, by washing my face and hands. I tried to talk to old Dan, but I may as well just talk to a stump for all the attention he paid me. He kept walking around sniffing here and there, and he couldn't understand why we were waiting. He was wanting to hunt. Reuben and Rainey showed up just after dark. Both had sneers on their faces. Are you ready? Reuben asked. Yes, I said, and asked him which way was the best to go. Let's go down river and work him way up, he said. We're sure to strike them coming up river. That's why we've got wind in our favor. Are these the hounds that we've been hearing so much about? Rainy asked. I nodded. They look too little to be any good, he said. I told him dynamite came in little packages. He asked me if I had my two dollars. Yes, I said. He wanted to see my money. I showed it to him. Reuben, not to be outdone, showed me his. 
We cr crossed an old field and entered the river bottoms. And by this time, I was it was quite dark. I lit my lantern and asked which way, which one wanted to carry my axe. It's yours, Rainy said. You carry it. Not wanting to argue, I carried both the lantern and the axe. Rainy started telling me how stingy and crooked my grandfather was. I told him I hadn't come to have any trouble or to fight. All I wanted to do was to hunt the ghost coon. If there was going to be any trouble, I would just call my dogs and go home. Reuben had a nickel's worth of sense, but Rainy had none at all. Reuben told him if he didn't shut up, he was going to bloody his nose. Well, that shut Rainy up. Old Dan opened up first. It was a beautiful thing to hear. The deep tones of his voice rolled in the silent night. A bird in the canebrake of our, on our right started chirping. A big swamp rabbit came running down the riverbank as if all hell was close to his heels. A bunch of mallards feeding in the shallows across the river took flight with frightened quacks. A feeling that only a hunter knows slowly crept over my body. I whooped my dogs, urging them on. Little Anne came in, her bell-like tones blended with old Dan's in perfect rhythm. We stood and listened to the beautiful music, the deep-throated notes of hunting hounds on the hot scented trail of a river coon. Reuben said, If he crosses the river up and buck forward, it's the ghost coon, and that's the way he always runs. We stood and listened. Sure enough, the voices of my dogs were silent for a few minutes. Old Dan, a more powerful swimmer than little Anne, was the first to open up across the, after crossing the river. She was close behind him. Reuben said, That's him, all right. That's a ghost coon. They crossed the river again, and we waited. Rainy said, You may as well just get your money out. I told him, Just wait a while, and I'd show him the ghost coon's hide. And this brought a loud laugh from Rooney, which sounded like someone had dropped an empty bucket on a gravel bar and then had kicked it. The wily old coon crossed the river several times, but couldn't shake my dogs from his trail. He cut out from the bottoms and walked up a rail fence and then jumped from it <clears throat> to a thick cane break. We piled into an old slough. It was emptied into the river. He swam to the middle. Doing opposite to what most coons do, which is swim downstream, he swam upstream. He stopped in an old drift in the middle of it. Little Ann found him. When she jumped him from the drift, old Dan was far downriver searching for the trail. If he could have gotten there in time, it would have been the last of the ghost coon, but little Ann couldn't do much by herself in the water. He fought his way free from her, swam to our side, and ran upstream. I could hear old Dan coming through the bottoms on the other side, bawling at every jump. I could feel the driving power of his voice. We heard him when it, he hit the water to cross over. It sounded like a cow had jumped in. Little Ann was warming up the ghost coon. I could tell by her voice that she was close to him. And reaching our side, old Dan tore out after her. He was a mad hound. His deep voice was telling her he was coming. And we were trotting along, following my dogs, when I heard little Ann's bawling stop. Wait a minute, I said. I think she's treat him. Let's give her time to circle the tree to make sure he's there. Old Dan opened up bawling tree, and Reuben started on. Something's wrong, I said. I can't hear little Ann. Rainy spoke up. Maybe the ghost coon ate her. I glared at him. Hurrying on, we came to my dogs. Old Dan was bawling at a hole in the large sycamore that had fallen into the river. At that spot, the bank was good ten feet above the water level. As the big tree had fallen, the roots had been torn and twisted from the ground. The jagged roots, acting as a drag, had stopped it off from falling all the way into the stream. The trunk lay on the steep slant from the top of the bank to the water. Looking down, I could see the broken, tangled mass on the top. Debris from floods had caught in the limbs, forming a drift. Old Dan was trying to dig and gnaw his way into the log. Pulling him from the hole, I held my lantern up and looked down into the dark hollow. I knew that somewhere down below the surface there had to be another hole in the trunk. 
as water had filled the hollow to the river level. Reuben, looking over my shoulder, said, That coon couldn't be in there. If he was, he'd be drowned. I agreed. Rainy spoke up. You ready to pay off? He asked. I told you them hounds couldn't treat the ghost coon. I told him the show wasn't over. Little Ann had never treat, bald treat, and I knew she wouldn't until she knew exactly where the coon was. Working the bank up and down and not finding the trail, she swam across the river and worked the other side. For a good half hour, she searched for the side before she came back across to where old Dan was. She sniffed around the hollow log. You might as well just get away from here, Rainy said. <laughs> they ain't gonna be find that ghost coon. It sure looks that way, Reuben said. I told them I wasn't giving up until my dogs did. You just want to be stubborn, Reuben said. I'm ready for my money now. I asked him to wait a few minutes. Ain't no use, he said. No hound ever treated the guy close, coon. Hearing a whine, I turned around. Little Ann had bawled, crawled up into the log and was inching her way down the slick trunk toward the water. I held my lantern up so I could see better. Spraddle legged claws digging into the bark, she was easing her way down. You better get her out of there, Reuben said. If she gets down in that old treetop, she'll drown. Reuben didn't know my little Ann. Once her feet slipped, I saw her hindquarters fall off to one side. She didn't get scared. Slowly, she eased her legs back up on the log. I made no reply. I just watched and waited. Little Ann eased herself into the water, and swimming to the drift, she started sniffing around. In places, it was thin, and her legs would break, though. Climbing, clawing, and swimming, she searched the drift over, looking for the lost trail. I saw when she stopped searching. With her body half in the water and her front feet curved over a piece of driftwood, she turned her head and looked toward the shore. I could see her head twisting from side to side. I could tell by her actions that she had gotten the scent. With a low whine, she started back. I told Reuben, I think she smells something. Slowly and carefully, she worked her way through the tangled mass. I lost sight of her when she came close to the undermined bank. She wormed her way under the overhang. I could hear her clawing and wallowing around, and then all hell broke loose. Out from under the bank came the biggest coon I had ever seen, the ghost coon. He came out right over little land. She caught him in the old treetop. I knew she was no match for the him in that tangled mass of limbs and logs. He fought his way free and swam for the opposite bank. She was right behind him. Old Dan didn't wait, look or listen. He piled off the ten-foot bank and disappeared from sight. I looked for him. I knew he was tangled in the debris under the surface. I started to take off my overalls, but stopped when I saw his red head shoot up from the water. Bawling and clawing his way free of the limbs and logs, he was on his way. On reaching midstream, the ghost coon headed downriver with little ants still on his trail. We ran down the riverbank. I could see my dogs clearly in the moonlight. The ghost coon was about 15 feet ahead of little Ann. About 25 yards behind them came old Dan, trying so hard to catch up. I whooped to them. Reuben grabbed a pole, saying, He may not. He may come around on this side. Knowing the ghost coon was desperate, I wondered what he would do. Reaching a gravel bar below the high bank, we ran out on it to the water's edge. Then the ghost coon did something that I never expected. Coming even with us, he turned from midstream and came straight for us. I heard Reuben yell, Here he comes! He turned his way through the shallows and ran right between us. Reuben swung his pole, missed the coon, and almost hit little Ann. The coon headed for the river bottoms with her right on with her right on her heels. The bawling of little Ann and our screeching and hollering made so much noise I, I didn't hear old Dan coming. He tore out of the river, plowed into me, and knocked me down. We ran through the bottoms, following my dogs. I thought the ghost coon was going to going to go back to the sycamore log, but he didn't. He ran up river. 
While hurrying after him, I looked over at Rainy, and for once in his life, I think he was excited. He was whooping and screaming and falling over logs and limbs. <laughs> I felt good all over. Glancing at me, Rainy said, You ain't got him yet. The ghost coon crossed the river at time after time. Seeing that he couldn't shake old Dan and little lamb from his trail, he cut through the river bottoms and ran out into an old field. And at this maneuver, Reuben said to Rainy, He's headed for that tree. What tree, I asked. You'll see, Rainy said. When he gets tired, he always heads for that tree. That's where he gets his name, the ghost coon. He just disappears. If he disappears, my dogs will disappear with him, I said. Rainy laughed. I had to admit one thing. The Pritchard boys knew the habits of the ghost coon. I knew he couldn't run all night. He had already far surpassed any coon I had ever chased. They're just about there, Reuben said. Just then I heard old Dan bark treed. I waited for little Land's voice, and I didn't hear her. I wondered what it could be this time. He's there all right, Reuben said. He's in that tree. Well, come on, I said. I want to see that tree. <laughs> you might as well just get your money out, Reuben Rainey said. I told him he had said that once before, back on the riverbank. <laughs>